When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Mark Wicker is someone I thought of when I came up with the idea for this show. To me, he's one of those sports writers who defined an era. He was everywhere, and he could write any sport. Write it fast and sharp, with a wit and insight shaped by well-traveled experiences and observations. I always liked reading Mark's columns, and I always liked talking with him. You'll enjoy hearing from him on this episode. Hey, Mark, I'm so glad you're joining us on Pressbox Access. Welcome Thank to the you. tavern. Yeah, looking forward to it. After uh, nearly a half century in sports writing, you got out on your own terms, which is, <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. You retired in February. I'm very happy for you. You know, I specifically recall a great night many moons ago in Sydney, Australia, when we had a few Victoria Bitters, as I recall. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you well, remember there, that. There, were, there was more than one of those nights. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. so they all kind of run together. Those VBs, they though, they good. had quite a punch to them. So, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Mark, you've always been such a good storyteller, uh, even away from the keyboard. When you think about your career in scribes getting together at watering holes, did you have a go-to story for sports writers or a quintessential sports writer story that you remember? No, I think generally speaking, when we would get together, it would be after a game and we'd talk about the game and things that happened. And, you know, it really it really was, uh, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the group that we had, that, uh, especially at a World Series or or an NBA uh, Finals or a, a fight or, or anything like that. Uh, you know, the, the people were really engaged and glad to be there, and, and there was always something going on, everybody's opinions, and you know, you'd kind of go back and hear what everybody else thought and wonder that, you know, wonder if you actually had, you know, you already written by then, and you wondered if you'd actually written what you'd wanted to. And, uh, you know, those were very creative things because it, it sort of, even though we were having a good time and cutting up, it was also creative from the process because, you know, you would you would think of ideas that you that had not occurred to you at the time, and it helped you the next day when you went out and did a, a follow story or an early column. So, uh, I think the one story that that um, that I enjoyed was uh, at the Masters one year at the upstairs uh, lounge. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the old days when sports writers would get drunk and sort of. Before they wrote, <laughs> and uh, so and and sometimes the story wouldn't quite get to the office, and uh, and uh, Clyde Bolton from Birmingham was uh, sitting there, and he was lamenting those days and how the business had changed. And he said, "You know, back in the old days, I could pass out right on this floor, and three or four guys they'd write their they'd write my story for me. Now 
they'd write a story about me. <laughs> and uh, which is which is which is true. Which is exactly that's exactly what would happen. Yeah, it's changed that way. I always remember stories. Uh, Bucky Albers once told me about a guy passing out in the press box, and Bucky, the longtime. You know, you covered the Reds and other things in Dayton. He said that the guy then took everybody's carbon copies, stacked them up, and said, imagine a guy like me having to copy yeah, right. shit exactly, like this. Yeah. yeah, there was another, there was a guy in South Carolina, this is back in the days of Western Union, where you would, uh, you, you would hand it to the person and they would just punch it in, and it was great. You know, you didn't have to worry about sending it yourself. Right. And... Um, there's a guy named Scoop, who uh, one of the South Carolina writers who was a little indisposed. And nobody said anything. They noticed what was going on. And, and suddenly they got, a, uh, they got a notice back from Scoop's paper. And it said, the guy said, gentlemen, I really appreciate it, but we already have three Scoop Latimer stories here. That's more than we can handle. You know? <laughs> so. Hey, yeah, his yeah, friends were just making sure. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even have to communicate. They just uh, did it, you know, so. Yeah, it's great. That's great. It was part of the being in the tribe. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you were a true road warrior. You were a dateline machine, especially uh, in your years in Philly and, and 35 years in Southern California, mostly at the Orange County Register. And, you know, you spent those formative years in Philly, and we'll get into that. But I wanted to start with uh, where you started, and that's in your home state of North Carolina. Land of college hoops. Also mm -hmm. NASCAR, but college hoops. You kicked, You started off your career, you broke in with the 74 North Carolina State team, right? The great yeah, David I, Thompson and yeah, I'd gone the, team, to, the team that won the national title? Yeah, I was in, uh, I went to Chapel Hill and, and uh, got out in 73, and then I worked for a year for the Chapel Hill paper. And then in 74, I got a job as a columnist in Winston-Salem. But uh, that, that famous 74 team, I was working in Chapel Hill at the time, and... Um, I was at the game where they beat um, UCLA and Greensboro. But anyway, I, I was at the UCLA game, and which was astounding and, uh, to watch. But it was very historic. And, um, you know, that state team lost one game in two years. They were undefeated in 1973, but they were also on probation, so they didn't get to go anywhere. But, yeah, I mean, I, you, you tell people about David Thompson today, and, and they really don't know who you're talking about. But he's, as far as culturally, socially... Uh, everything he was he was the most important player in ACC history. He he came along at a time when hmm. integration was was underway, but wasn't really fully established yet. And it was still, you know, there, it was it was sort of unthinkable that anybody would have a black coach or a black quarterback even in the ACC. Hmm. Well, that's not true. There were a couple of black quarterbacks before him, but um, Thompson was a guy who everybody loved. And I think he did a lot for relations um, between the races in North Carolina. Um, and he mm -hmm. was just a phenomenal, spectacular basketball player for his time because of his leaping ability. And, um, you know, those are the days when you couldn't dunk because they had a no-dunk rule. Right. And uh, his last regular season game, he just said <laughs> that he was in the game at the end and, and they were up by about 25 and... He just said, screw it, and went up for a flop and slammed it, you know, and everybody <laughs> went crazy. And, uh, but uh, yeah. he, he was, those were great teams, and, and um, that state team was hard to match up with because they had a great player in Thompson. They had a really good five foot six point guard from Indiana named Monty Tao, who was a great shooter and a great mm -hmm. distributor. And then they had Tommy Burleson, who was seven foot four, and 
might not have looked pretty all the time, but it was extremely effective. And, and if he wanted to score, you really couldn't stop him. So um, it took a team like that to, to beat UCLA and, and end that, uh, you know, kind of end the, the Walton years. Didn't end the dynasty, but it ended the Walton years. Well, you spent those years in your home state, and you had a stop in Dallas, I believe, and, and then on to Philadelphia in 1978. And, and now we're talking Eagles, Phillies, Sixers, Flyers, and college hoops. What a town, what a sports town, and, and what a time to be a sports writer in Philadelphia. You became a columnist there in Philly, but before that, you were a beat reporter, and you, you covered the Sixers, and you covered the Phillies. Uh, what kind of memories do you have uh, of those two beats? Yeah, Philadelphia was, uh, you know, I was covering the 76ers with Julius serving, very high-profile uh, uh, sport. It was the first time I ever covered a major league beat, and, um, you know, it, there's a lot about it. I mean, it's grueling. We had an eight-game road trip one time that took like 17 days and went coast to coast. But when you're young and and uh, and enjoying it and seeing things for the first time, you know, sleep is overrated. You know, you just uh, oh yeah, definitely. You, you know, you you just try to drink it all in. And uh, we had, you know, we had six writers uh, covering that team, and we had six writers covering the Phillies from six different newspapers. So competition was was a big deal. You know, you didn't want to get beat on anything. Right. And um, the Sixers were great uh, to deal with. They were fun, um, good people. You know, Julius Irving is a prince. Um, you know. Well, what and, is your favorite? What is your favorite Dr. J story? I don't. I don't really have a favorite. I mean, he was just great to deal with, and he was. Uh, he he really thought about what, how he wanted to answer questions, and he spoke in a very. You know, he's proud of his vocabulary. And uh, he was a great quote, and he would talk all the time, no matter what, and no matter, you know, he did get criticized in Philadelphia for not playing much defense and all that. And he, uh, he was just a professional, and I think he affected everybody in that room. And, and Daryl Dawkins was um, just a, a delight, an absolute. I mean, if he had lived, if he had been here today, he would have been, he would have been like Barkley, you know, on TV. He had that type of wit, and uh, he was just like a big kid, you know, and he might not have ever been the player everybody thought he was going to be, but he was he was just a wonderful human being and, and uh, it made us laugh. Uh, you know, f th those were fun days. The Phillies were different because uh, the Phillies at that time had had a really good team for a few years, but they were, they had flamed out in the playoffs um, mm -hmm. to the Dodgers a couple of times and to the Reds. And... So they were, you know, they were catching a lot of heat and they were, they were a little surly. I mean, they had... Uh, but they had great personalities too. They had Pete, Pete Rose came that year that I covered mm -hmm. them. Right, and and as you know, there's never been anybody more fun to cover than Pete Rose. And what what made him so fun, Mark? He just he knew what he knew how how it worked. He knew how the system worked. He knew what we needed. Uh, he always talked. He he recognized that if that if he was accommodating, that it would help him. You know, that's how he looked at it. I remember one of the players was mad and didn't talk one day, and Pete said, what's the matter with him? Doesn't, doesn't he want to make money? You know, mm -hmm. That's how he looked at it. And, uh, and he, loved, he loved talking about baseball, and he loved talking about himself, and that's what we wanted to talk to him about. So, right. so it was kind of a match made in heaven. But, you know, and they, you know, Tug McGraw was on that team. He, was, he could be funny. And, um, but, you know, it was, baseball is different because you play every day, and there's a lot of tension and there was a lot of tension with that team, and, mm -hmm. and you had to be pretty, you know, they had to be pretty thick-skinned, th th and so did you, because it, there was never any pretense that they didn't read the paper. They read everything. 
and and they were they would call you on things and and I learned an incredible amount in those two years. Uh, the first year they weren't very good because they had a lot of injuries. The second year was 1980. And they were six games out at the end of August and, and won the World Series. I think that's when I learned just how long a baseball season really is and how you shouldn't draw conclusions on May 14th about, you know, what kind of year this is mm. going to be because everything can right. change very quickly. And, uh, um, yeah, I love those years. I mean, I look back. I mean, it was, it was you know, in 1980, I covered 160 out of 162 games. Wow. Not knowing that they, not knowing that they were going to be in the playoffs. You know, I just that. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so I was a little fried at the end of that, but uh, they were a hell of a team. Uh, they had they had uh, they had you know Schmidt, who was you know the best third baseman probably who ever lived. They had Rose, who was you know, self-explanatory. Steve Carlton was the best pitcher in the league. Um, mm-hmm. You know Bob Boone, Bob Greg Boone, the catcher, McBride. Yeah. yeah, I mean McGraw, Danny Trio was a very very underrated player. He was. When they needed to have something happen in the postseason, more often than not, he was the guy who was in the middle of it. And um, right. and Dallas Green took over for Danny Ozark. He was the larger of the life character. The general manager, Paul Owens, was one of the great people of all time, and one of the he was phenomenal to cover too because you know he wanted to go out, especially in Chicago, when you'd play a day game. One of the requirements of the beat is you, we, we, you know, his nickname was the Pope, and uh, one of the requirements of the beat was you had to go out with the Pope. Because <laughs> if, you know, around midnight or so, he might get to the point where he might tell you something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the Pope liked it when you were out with him, too. And uh, I remember one time, this is after I left, the guys were out and he was, they had, they had dispatched him to go on the trip. He was no longer the GM. But... They were gonna. He was gonna tell the front office whether they ought to fire the manager or not. You know, because the manager was struggling at that time. And uh, right. So they were all. They were out in Chicago late at night, and the Pope was in the bag, of course. And uh, <laughs> somebody said, uh, "Well, finally said, uh, Pope, are you are y'all gonna fire this guy or not?" And uh, Pope said, "Well, let me tell you something. He said, if I were you, I wouldn't go out on any." Boat rides in Lake Michigan tomorrow morning, and, uh, and uh, the guy said, and the guy had already written Paul Hagen told the story, and, it, and yeah. he went he went around to the corner to the payphone and told the desk. He said, "You know where I said that the Phillies might fire John Felsky tomorrow? Change that to they will fire John Felsky." <laughs> and, uh, so that that was that's how you become an investigative reporter. You hang around the Pope, and exactly. And hopefully, you're, if your liver can, if your liver can hold up, you you might get a story. Right. Well, the Phillies delivered too. They won that 1980 championship to please the fan base at least for a while. They did it in Veterans Stadium, by the way. One of the all-time giant concrete ashtrays you can imagine. I mean, <laughs> do you have any memory of of trying to work in the vet? Well, how big I were the rats? I never saw any of the rats. I know, John, uh, I know that the Eagles people used to talk about it. The Astrodome probably had better, had, had better tougher rats because it was hotter. But uh, um, it was, it was uh, you know, it, it could, it, you have hot summers in Philly, obviously, and it really gets hot down on that turf, and, and the whole place is hot. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It was, it was a great baseball stadium because it was configured that way. It wasn't as good a football stadium, but... You know, they had. I saw a doubleheader with the Pirates there one time in 1979. They had 71,000 people there. I mean, it, you know. Wow. Um, it was, you know, and, and uh, you know, you, you could, 
every few games you look down in right field and the whole the whole section was like one big brawl. You'd have a big you know, a bunch of people fighting each other, and <laughs> and um, you know they, they would have these nights that he dedicated to certain union chapters. You know the pipe fitters and the teamsters or whatever, and, yeah, and you, right. you, you would have some good, pretty good fights in those on those nights because they'd be uh, <laughs> they'd be throwing down those. Uh, those Schmitz beers that they've been drinking, and um, but uh, I remember was, covering a Bengals. Uh, I remember covering a Bengals Eagles game in the vet, and there was a municipal judge in the bowels of the stadium. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they would just bring the fans in to see the judge. Yeah, they would, <laughs> and and uh, and and they also had a really good way. And, and I agreed with this. If if a, if a fan ran out on the field, they would they would drag him into the. Inside, like where the, where the press elevator opened up, down on the in the bottom, and you'd walk out, and they they would just be beating the hell out of this guy, you know. I mean, it, it was mm. it, there was no due process uh, involved in that, but no. uh, yeah, it was it was a tough place. Only to, justice, yeah. You know, it's just like anything else in Philly, you know. It's it's a tough town, but it's it's uh, it's real, you know. And and uh, and and uh, the night that they won. Um, you know, they had had some problems in Yankee Stadium a few years ago with people running out on the field. So right in the ninth inning, mm-hmm. they were up by two or three runs. And all of a sudden, uh, this door opens in center field. And Kansas City's trying to hit in the top of the ninth. They're not out of the game by any means. And uh, and here come this, like, phalanx of horses with cops on them. I mean, it was like... Um, you know, it was like one of those islands in the Mediterranean where there's just you know hundreds of wild horses, except they had cops on top of them, and they were, <laughs> they were, and they lined the whole warning track all the way down to the dugouts, and and then they had, then you look on top of the dugouts and they had these these killer police dogs that were you know barking at everybody, and uh, and nobody ran on the field that night, and, and actually that was kind of the turning point because nobody really did that after that. Yeah, and uh, I remember Dick. You remember Dick Young? I remember Dick Young from New York in the in the press box. He loved it. He thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever seen in his life. So, <laughs> but it was it was. I remember the players talking about it was like playing in the. It was like some night in the Dominican Winter League, you know, where you have all the cops and everything. And it was it was a mm. massive show of force. They could have they could have captured uh, some islands in the Caribbean that night with how many people they had on the out on the field. Well, that captures the uh, sports scene in Philly, especially in 1980. Uh, several years later, y- you move out to California, Southern California, in 1987, where you become a columnist at the Orange County Register. Um, you know, a little different atmosphere, right? L.A., Hollywood, big stars, big personalities, and really none bigger at that time when you get there than Magic Johnson. It's kind of the tail end of Showtime, but still, you know, there's there's still Showtime. When you're a writer dealing with Magic, what was it like in those days? Uh, how did how did he handle the media? Well, the Sixers had played them a couple times in the finals, and and I had also covered NBA finals that they used to play against the Celtics. That was one of the great things about working at the Daily News because you know they weren't provincial. You know, they they would if there was a good story elsewhere, they'd say go get it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Magic was great. Um, you know, he was, he was, I never saw him be uncooperative. I saw moods, you know, he was, he was not a good loser. And uh, I saw different moods of his, but he was always cooperative. He was always, uh, he was always good. You know, I always enjoyed, you know, he was, I always enjoyed dealing with him. The thing that when I went out there to work full time, you know, I, like I said, I was somewhat familiar with the Lakers. 
But I would. I remember asking a couple of big guys. I said, "Who are the best guys to talk to before the game?" Mm-hmm. Um, when the locker rooms open until forty-five minutes before tip-off, and uh, and I assumed they'd say Magic or Cooper or somebody like that. And they said, "No, Kareem. Kareem mm-hmm. is the best guy." I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." So uh, I did that. I, you know, one of my first things. I kind of took a deep breath and went over and talked to Kareem because Kareem's, you know, he's not a bullshit guy. He's going to tell you, you know. He, he doesn't want to talk if he doesn't want to. Right. And he was great. I mean, especially if you didn't talk to him about basketball. He was, he was, and he still is, uh, just a phenomenal observer of things that go yeah, on. Yeah, such a and, smart guy. I love his yeah. writing. He's writing yeah. some great stuff, books and columns yeah. now. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he didn't have that effervescent personality that Magic had, but, um, but obviously he, you know, he was a leader in his own way and one of the all time great players. Yeah. Um, he got, he, he, he really, he really uh, mellowed out, I think. Uh, you know, when he first got there, he was, you know, the Milwaukee traded him there. And right. he was supposed to lead them to a championship and all this. And, and there were a lot of good big men in the league back then. And it didn't always work out. They didn't they didn't do as well. And he, he was, you know, the writers were kind of, um, they, they would kind of be rough with him uh, during that time because, because of who he was and because he was pretty aloof. But mm-hmm. I think when Magic came out, Magic sort of, you know, not not only did he make the team a championship team, he really allowed Kareem to to go do his thing without being the center of attention, and I think it relaxed him. And when I was there, mm-hmm. like I said, he was great. I mean, I, you know, he, he, and they were all very, very good. They didn't have any bad guys on the team, and and Pat was Pat was that was before he really became. Um, you know, a bigger than life character, and and he was. I mean, he he was very interesting to talk to. He's a smart guy too, and uh, so yeah, I had no. Uh, I really enjoyed being around that team. I didn't cover him as a beat, but I was around him quite. You a developed a working relationship with Kareem. You know, who could be reticent, but I think you said that one of your favorite stories involved Kareem before the two thousand and eight election. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was uh, two, 2008 election was coming up, and it, it seemed apparent that Obama at least had a good chance to win, become the first black president. And I thought, you know, I wonder what Kareem thinks about this, because he grew up in New York in the mid-60s. He knew what riots were all about. He knew what discrimination mm-hmm. was all about. Right. And, you know, he, he, he could really, I thought, well, you know, he could really kind of put it in perspective. So I got an appointment with him. He was uh, at one of his studios here in Long Beach. And I went out and talked to him. He was great. He talked about how he wished his dad was still alive to see the possibility of a black man becoming president. And he talked about how he would, they would put Kareem on a bus in New York when he was 15, but he was still seven feet tall. And they would send him to, to see the grandparents in, in Goldsboro, North Carolina, which is in the eastern wow. part of the state, in the 60s, and uh, by himself. And uh, he said that was kind of a harrowing experience. But, uh, you know, he, he told a lot of good stories. And, and so... Besides Kareem, are there other athletes who brought more to the media than just being entertaining or funny or not dealing with you at all? I'm talking about guys who kind of had a worldview, maybe some perspective that they didn't mind sharing. Not necessarily in a politicized way that they're stumping for anything, but just guys that were interesting to have conversations with. Well, I think Steve Kerr is, is certainly that way. Uh, you know, he's had a pretty full life. You know, he had his, his dad was assassinated in Lebanon when he was the president of the American University over there. And um, he, he certainly knows that there's a lot more to it um, outside of the game. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think Magic, Magic was that way, too. Magic is not so much socially, but 
in terms of business, you know, he was always trying to figure out how to 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 make it in business, make it in entertainment. And he had some ups and downs. You remember he had that kind of failure, that Magic Johnson show, which right. went over like a lead balloon. But he, he recovered from that. And, and then when he got sick, you know, and, and, you know, it's hard to, you know, it was 1991. Um, you tend to forget that um, back then, if you said you were HIV positive, it was a death sentence in most oh, people's yeah, minds, right. and he was gone. And that, that's the way I looked at it. I remember <laughs> hearing that on the radio that morning, and you know he's going to have a press conference at the forum in, a, in an hour and a half, and just kind of making a beeline for the place. And um, yeah, so what what was it like in there oh, at that press it was, conference? It was charged. I'll say that it was. People were stunned, and and uh, you know I would say that day and the day Kobe got killed were were two of the most you know, days in terms of just what, what can you say? I mean, you know, and and um, unfortunately, our business is you got to say something, but most most people can can just kind of be along with their thoughts, and we had to come up with some some way to articulate what people were feeling, and uh, it was crazy. I mean, you know, they people just jammed into this uh, forum club where they had the press conference, and mm -hmm. Magic came out and and talked and and. Uh, that was it, and and uh, we thought, okay, well, the next year or so, we're going to write about the death of Magic Johnson, and wow. the fact that he was able to play in the All Star game only probably the next um, March or or February, um, and that he, you know, he kind of was the guinea pig for a lot of the therapies that they did, and you know, got in great shape and thought it off, and and now is you know. A, tremendously successful businessman in L.A. I mean, I think, you know, that's not what you were asking exactly, but that's that's the type of thing where he's bigger than the game. You know, you have a guy who, right. who is, uh, you know, who is a lot a lot bigger than the game and, and uh, in terms of, of the things that he does. Well, you're out there in fantasy land all these years, and you're uh, based in the L.A. market, but really, you were traveling so much. You were always at the major events around the nation and the world, you got to see all these highs and these lows of different things. I think we share one of the highs that at Sydney, and it didn't involve Victoria Bitters. It involved uh, the runner Kathy Freeman, the Australian track star at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. She won the gold medal that night in the 400 meters. What do you remember about being in that stadium? Why is that special to you? The Aussies were so proud of having the Olympics. Um, you know, the, the way they look at things there in a terribly remote part of the world. Nobody ever comes to see them. They're not a world power. Uh, they're very proud of what they built down there and the type of people that they are. I think that's one reason they're very proud of their athletics uh, because they've mm -hmm. disproportionately been really good in a lot of different sports. And they love physical activity. They love the, the, they love the fight. They, they, they are very joyful athletes to, to categorize. And Kathy Freeman was <clears throat> Aboriginal and, and was and was the best in the world at what she did. They were very proud of her, and you know, for her to be able to win a 400 meters in their stadium in Sydney was, uh, you know, something I'm sure that it's the type of thing you have to make a postage stamp about, really. And I remember um, she came around that curve, that last curve, and you know, the place is deafening, loud. But the noise just kind of, it's its very eerie. You know, I've been around 
really loud things, like when Steve Garvey had a home run for the Padres to win a playoff game against the Cubs in 1984, and you couldn't send your story because it was so loud in, that, in San Diego that night. She came around that curve, and it was like the noise just kind of went up a couple of octaves, and, and it, it was kind of like you weren't even, it didn't even sound like people anymore. It sounded like some sort of a, you know, like the monolith in 2001. I mean, it was just this eerie, high-pitched sound. It, all the noise kind of came together. And uh, the emotion uh, was, uh, you know, it's just it's nothing. I, I've never been around anything like that. And uh, for her to win and, and do what she did, it was, it was phenomenal. And, you know, I remember that, that Olympics was very special because of that. And most of the time in the Olympics, once you've been in a, once the world has been in your town for two and a half weeks, they're ready, they're ready for you to leave. I remember in Seoul, I thought they were, the Army was going to chase us all out of the country because athletes had been misbehaving and acting like fools. and That happens almost every... <laughs> Send in those Philly yeah, let's horses. Get, let's let's <laughs> just get out of here and you know go back to where you came from. <laughs> See you later. In, in Australia... Um, they were sad. They had they had to they had to like bring in psychiatrists to to kind of give the country a a pat on the back, saying, I'm, you know, the, the Olympics are ending. You know, I mean, they were depressed that it was over and that, that their that their party was going to be over. And you know, like you would do, uh, you, you would go into an arena and um, do the security, and uh, you know, you you take your stuff through the security booth and everything and. I remember somebody said, "What? Well, this is near the end of the Olympics, so I guess you'll be glad when we're gone. And, oh, no, no, this, this has been great. You know, I don't know. You know, and and yeah. they wished it could have lasted forever. And I think because of, of that feeling is what went into the emotion of, of Kathy Freeman that night. Yeah, I remember the day before her race, I went to an Aboriginal camp, uh, like in the downtown area, and interviewed several people there talking about the pride they had for her. So I knew the pressure that she was under from a national standpoint. And then I was so fortunate. My seat was literally in the front row at the finish line. And so you're right. When she came around that bend, it was as if this jet engine of noise just lifted her, propelled her down that the straightaway. And I just, I still think about it today and I get chills. And yeah. she sat down after finishing 20 feet from me and took her spikes off yeah. and the noise just kept rolling and rolling and rolling and to me it's the, it might be the greatest thing I ever witnessed and I was fortunate to see some cool things it was but one of them that sound that moment mm -hmm. that was that was just an incredible yeah. incredible experience I mean, and, to see yeah. her to see her do that in that type of environment mm -hmm. under those type of stakes the, the noise was like a physical thing it was like a force that you could put your finger on and uh Right. It was like it was like a, a hurricane, and um, right, yeah, it, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty-four-seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, that was certainly one of the highs, and we both got to share that one. Uh, you've also seen some lows, and uh, a couple of those come to mind, and that involves golf. You know, one of them was Carnoustie in 1999 when the Frenchman Jean Vandeveld 
blew a three-stroke lead in the 18th hole. <laughs> and then the other one was in 96 at Augusta National, and you saw Greg Norman blow a six-shot lead in the final round of the Masters and lose to Nick Fado. Uh, how, which one of those Hindenburgs was worse? Um, I think Norman was just because of he had lost tournaments like that before, and it kind of had a, you know, things like that kept happening to him. Um, Vanderveld was delightful all week. He was he made the thing worthwhile. His wife was great. She would come in the press room, and they were just having the they were having the time of their lives. You know, he he led the tournament after Friday, and then after Saturday, and then he kept hanging in there. He made everybody looked at. And Carnisti is a very difficult golf course. It was really difficult that day. Mm-hmm. And he got to the 18th tee. So I left, and I was going out to 18, and I remember walking past. Uh, Larry Leonard, who was Justin Leonard's dad, Justin Leonard was was right behind Vanderbilt, and and he was telling you know he was telling somebody so well Justin gave it a good run well you know best best guy's going to win etc. And so I go out there and then and then all of a sudden it's like you know he's hitting it here he's hitting it there and I'm thinking <laughs> and I'm having I'm not having a real good luck seeing what's going on but I said holy. Crap! I better get back to the press room so I can see this, you know. And and uh, and then you know, and then and then then I went back to the green when it looked like, and, and he made a great putt to get into the playoff. Nobody remembers that, but um, and then he lost the playoff to Paul Laurie, who shot a sixty-seven and 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 uh, was from Scotland, right. which was made it even better. And Leonard was also in that playoff. And uh, I remember following Vandeveld into the clubhouse with this caddy. It was just this kid, you know, his kid, he had kind of a man bun back when not everybody had those. And mm. he was just like, he, he was like this guy that you would see on a French sidewalk cafe, you know, painting or something. I mean, it was like, <laughs> didn't look like a caddy or anything. His name was Christoph. And we were talking to him in the locker room and he had no idea what the hell happened to, to Vanderbilt or, or what. Because he, you know, a real caddy would have said, look, don't hit it there, hit it here. We're going to win. And, uh. But even even after he lost, I mean, he was emotional. But he came in and he was laughing and talked about what a great time he had, and he gave it his best. And I don't know what happened, and it was kind of like, hey, you know, let's, you know, it was like the uh, let's be brave in the attempt. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was it, he he left everybody with a great uh, with, with a great feeling. You know, after he lost the thing, he 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 didn't want anybody, you know, feeling sorry for him. And um, so That's that part was. Yeah, it was getting you know, it was raining. I mean it was it was this real gloomy Scottish, you know, July day and uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I always I would love going there for for that tournament, especially in Scotland. And then uh the thing in Augusta was kind of the opposite. I mean he uh he was up by six, Norman was right. going into Sunday. And um as has been said many times the uh key to the tournament probably in retrospect was when Falbo birdie the 18th, which meant that he would play in the final group with Norman instead of a young Phil Mickelson. Right. And Faldo had already kind of destroyed Norman at St. Andrews in 1990 in a head-to-head situation. And Faldo was intimidating. You know, he was a big guy. He's he's very businesslike. He wasn't one of these nice shot guys, you know. He was going to play his game. And Norman came apart almost immediately. He was, you know, it's funny He's up six, and it was over after 12. Um, it was over after the 12th hole. He just, he could not, and, and Faldo sensed this, and what's lost in all this is Norman shot 78, 
Fowler shot 67 on Sunday at Augusta. Right. And played a perfect, almost perfect round of golf. And uh, But I remember being out there like around 10 and 11 and 12 when it was obvious that Norman wasn't going to get it together. And it was it was hushed, you know. It was like wow, you know. It, it was almost funereal. People were looking around like, "What the hell is going on?" And because everybody was getting ready to celebrate, hey, Greg finally wins the Masters, and you know, it's going to prove that he's the best player in the world and all this. And uh, it was uh, <laughs> it was it was really like a a, a freeway, you know, twelve car pileup. It was it was crazy. And 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 the thing about it is, you know, afterwards Norman comes in. You know, and he sits there and he answers every question and to the best of his knowledge. And, and even, you know, he made, a, he made a special with ESPN recently where right. he, he watched, he, he played the, they, had, they showed him playing Augusta, you know, hitting the ball close on number nine, which is one of the places where he started coming apart. And he said, well, you know, a little bit too late for that shot, hey, you know, and all this, and, you know, and just being really sportsmanlike about it. Now, again, you know, I mean, Greg Norman, you could say a lot of things about him, and, and people have, but, you know, there's that, there's that Aussie thing about the quest, you know, that, that it's important to win, but what's important is doing your best and, and having a good time and appreciating it and, and not, you know, trying to, not, not really running away from it. But you also saw some spectacular emotional moments, as we talked about with Kathy Freeman. One of the one of those moments I wanted to ask you about was in Yankee Stadium in 2001 at the World Series. It's only a few weeks after 9/11. You know, there's all of that. I mean, sometimes I wonder: do we just forget what it was like in those early weeks after 9/11? But especially in New York, you're in the ballpark. It's the World Series. And then the Yankees have those two consecutive nights where they have these homers by Jeter and Brocious. Um, what was it like in Yankee Stadium that night? Um, I'll never forget a lot of things about that whole thing. Uh, I remember Bush walking to the mound. And again, if, regardless of what you think about him, what a, def- what a great symbol that was with his presidential jacket on walking to the, to the, to the mound and... and re- Security was unbelievable, but you still weren't sure what was going to happen. I mean, that was the thing. You, you, that whole time period, you're always walking around, especially in New York, looking around at what, what's going to happen. And, and, and you know, because you had anthrax, people sending anthrax mm-hmm. to each other. You had a sniper in D.C. Right. You really didn't know. I mean, it was a very unstable time, even in late October after what had happened in September. And here's the president, you know, kind of, you know, how he walks, you know, jauntily walking out to the mound, you know, and, and throwing the first pitch. It was kind of like, hey, screw you. You know, we're here, you know. And it was, that mm-hmm. that moment right. was great. Uh, and and then he, he actually came up and sat in his box, which was next to the press box. But um, the whole, uh, being in New York then was, and and I think it's one of the few times where I think even though it was just an unspeakable moment, um, people for a while were together. We were we were one country there for a few weeks, and um, I remember you know just going through security and everybody you know everybody kind of looking at each other and, and saying you know let's don't take this for granted. Um, and those games, uh, they lost the first two in Arizona by wide margins. You know Arizona had Johnson and Schilling right. and had a really good team. And uh, they won game three, and then game four and five came down to the very end. And um, Jeter hit the home run after midnight. That's when they started calling him Mr. November. And then uh, Brocious 
And uh, the noise and the celebration, I and mean, it was, you know, and it, on top of the fact that the Yankees had won four of the five previous World Series, and there was kind of a sense of invincibility that they were always going to win. Now they didn't. You know, they lost an incredibly hard Game 7 in Phoenix. Um, and I remember going to Phoenix. The, the roof was open, and uh, they had a flyover and uh, in Game 7, and a stealth bomber came over the stadium. And, you know, and, and, of course, stealth bomber didn't make any noise, but it was like this massive Marvel Comics-looking spaceship. And, you know, I'm thinking for a while, I said, what? Who is this? I mean, what, what's going to happen now? I mean, are, are people going to jump out of the thing and start killing us? And and uh, it, it it was you know it, it it's the instability. I mean, it, I mean, COVID really doesn't. I mean, COVID, COVID kind of worked slowly throughout the whole country, but we you know back then it was people were jittery and 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 looking at each other and and um, the dramatics of that World Series and everything that went into it were uh, were intense and. Um, if, you know, the Yankees winning would have been a perfect ending for a lot of people. But again, that's baseball. That's not the way it was. And, and uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't win the World Series again until 2009. How did it make you think about sports at that moment? Uh, it made me realize, that, that like a lot of things that happen, that, that sports does have a place. And it's not because it, 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 uh, it's not because it, keeps, uh, it, it takes our mind off things. I think it focuses us on things. I mean, to see what people are capable of doing, uh, to see how elite elite athletes work and, and are able to thrive, um, I think it's inspirational. It's it's one of the true, one of the last meritocracies around. You know, you can know whoever you want to. You can you can be you know the the son of the most powerful people in the world, but if you can't hit the curveball, you're not going to play in the big leagues. And <laughs> um, or yeah. if you can't drive the ball straight, you know, Peter Uline is a great example. His dad runs Titleist and can't be anybody more connected in golf than he was, than he is. And he was the top amateur in the world and he can't get on the PGA Tour. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a true meritocracy. You know, we, we're always told that if you work hard and you have talent and you keep at it and, and, and if you get a break here and there, you're going to make it. And there are examples where that doesn't happen, that for people, right. but they're mostly it does. And I think it happens more often um, in sports than it does anywhere else. I mean, there's a scoreboard. You know, there's not a scoreboard in our business. We can screw up time and time again, and chances are we're not going to lose our job unless we do something really bad. But um, yeah. in sports, you're, you know, you got the numbers. The numbers determine everything, and and that your performance determines everything. And, and politics has a place, but it doesn't determine whether you get to play or not. And I think when, when bad things happen, uh, we, turn to, we turn to athletes, not, not to get away from what happened, but to reaffirm who we are and, and, and uh, what it's all about and what, what, our, you know, what, our, what the best of our society can be. And, um, and that's one reason, you know, as, as the years have gone on, I've really uh, learned to appreciate that about sport. You know, I think about not not the details so much about certain events or games or athletes that I was fortunate to cover, but just the surrounding emotion of certain yeah. moments, like we yeah. talked about. You were in Yankee Stadium. You know, we were in that you know, Sydney Olympic Stadium that night. It's the emotion and the sweep of it that really kind of uh, lingers with you and um, makes you appreciate that there's something bigger going on than just a winner and a loser. Uh, there's a community of spirit that that really uh 
sets things apart in ways that th- doesn't happen in other things. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. That emotion can also be very, you know, very difficult in times in, in a collective way. And I know you personally experienced that in 2009. Mark, you've written so many great, great columns over the years. And you had, you know, had one in 2009 that I think it's indicative of the time. That all of a sudden, it was instantaneous judgment and outrage. And that was a column in which you uh, wrote about uh, J.C. Dugard. When you look back on that experience personally, what, what do you take away from it now? Well, it was, it, you know, I, I deserved... Um, what happened? I mean, I, I didn't do it. It wasn't a good column. It wasn't a column that uh, I'm proud of at all. And uh, not because of, I did, not because of what I chose to write about, but because I didn't make it clear what I was writing about. And that's always bad when it, when when the intent of your column is goes haywire. You haven't done a very good job. Right. Uh, what I was trying to do was kind of celebrate the fact that people that this girl who had been in captivity for 18 years was alive. And, and, you know, her family, and I assume maybe some people in her family still thought that she could still be alive, but most people didn't, didn't think so, and most people weren't even aware of the story. Um, I did a column like that when Terry Anderson, the AP journalist, was um, released from Iran after he'd been a prisoner. And it was kind of like, okay, here's... Early 80s, yeah. You know, here's what happened in sports while you were gone, and it was kind of a way to kind of joke around with things that happened in, in sports and everything. It certainly wasn't directed toward her, but a lot of people took it that way. A lot of people thought I was being uh, contemptuous of her, and I, I certainly was not. But I, it, the column was too flippant, and I didn't make it clear that this was what I was trying to do in the column. And so uh, from, that, from that standpoint, I deserve to be criticized, and I should have written the column. I shouldn't have written it, or I should have written it differently. And you know, you apologized. I was I apologized in the paper, and uh, I kind of got off social media right at that point because I knew kind of what was happening. But uh, I got a ton of, right. of emails from people, most of which at first were very uh, critical and, and in some cases abusive. But uh, then I started getting a lot of emails from people who said, you know, I read you for years. Um, I don't know what you were doing, but you know, this has kind of gone far enough. You know, people mm-hmm. people are being unfair to you, and um, <laughs> a couple of emails like, "I read you for years. What the hell were you doing? You know, and what's wrong with you?" And uh, but but we'll we'll give you a mulligan on that one. And uh, and so you know, it, you know, this thing too. Uh, it lasted about you know a week, uh, and you know while that was going on, I you know I just kept working and didn't count, didn't look back, and. Uh, um, and in the end, it's just it's just noise. It's just Twitter. It's just it's sticks and stones, you know. And and uh, I wasn't suspended. I wasn't fired. I I don't think anybody ever said, "Well, I'm not going to give you an interview because of what you wrote." Uh, at least I, nobody told me that. Um, but yeah. it was it was stressful. It was stressful for for my family. It was stressful for people who for me, and it was stressful for people close to me. But. There was a key moment uh, right in the middle of it when I got a phone call from the woman who who represented the Dugard family um, with the media, and uh, she, Erica Schulte. Erica Schulte, and she said uh, she identified herself, and I kind of went, "Oh no!" And uh, she said, "No, no, this is good news." She she was she was concerned that I was catching too much grief about this. She said, I'm not only calling you to tell you that I don't think this is a big deal and that I don't see anything wrong with that column. I just got off the phone with your publisher at the register and told him the same thing. 
And I was eternally and still am eternally grateful for that. And really, after that happened, I said, you know, I don't really care what anybody thinks about this because uh, if they if they weren't upset about it, um, I don't know why anybody else was. But it was it was a lesson. I mean, it was it was me being careless and sloppy, and and uh, um, I you know I, I admit to being unprofessional that day, I, I, but I I deny that I was being um, malicious toward her. I really was not, and. Uh, and right. and I think she's she's gone on and lived her life and has got kids and has written books and and hopefully that's just a footnote and and the other thing too like you said you know everybody takes their turn in the barrel I mean a couple of weeks later it was somebody else you know and a couple of weeks later it was somebody else and, and and that's that's the nature of it you have a a huge pool of or maybe it's not huge but you have a very loud pool of of gotcha artists out there on social media that are just waiting for you to do right. something like that and um, you know you have uh, you know, you have you have publications or not publications, but you have websites like uh, you know Gawker, uh, which turned out to you know which which was sued out of existence because of the Hulk Hogan, Hogan tape. So it can happen to anybody, and if you throw stones, you know, it's probably not a good idea. You dealt with it as a journalist in a professional manner, and you and you just kept on kept keeping on, as they say, and uh, that's one of the reasons that you were top ten columnist in the nation a couple different times from APSC. It's a reason in 2015 that the Nate Fleischer Award for Excellence in Boxing Journalism was awarded to you. And, uh, and I bring up that one because I, I want to end on boxing. I want to, uh, you know, boxing and writing just go together so well. <laughs> they always have. It just makes itself such a great, it's just a great sport to write about. Why did you find that to be the case? And um, what did you enjoy about writing about boxing? I love, I love boxing. Um to me, you know, as I've gotten older, hockey and boxing were were the two things I enjoyed being around the most because they were the most serious. Uh, the, hockey is another level when it comes to competition. Uh, those guys play with injuries that a lot of other athletes would even not even think about playing with, and it, it, the importance of what they do and the the ethos of what they do, the way that, that, that the things that they feel are important are, are kind of I, I enjoy it because it reminds me of the way sports used to be. Uh, boxing, you're taking your life into your hands every time you go in. And as you're, you're in there by yourself. You go, you go to the corner for 60 seconds and people give you water and, and man, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, handle the cuts around your eyes and yell at you. But basically it's just you. And it's incredibly right. taxing. And, and uh, I mean, I think they're the best athletes around for what they do. I wish they fought a little more these days. I wish they'd fought four or five times a year instead of once or twice. But the atmosphere is, is uh, for a big fight. Um, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm kind of blasé about a lot of things. But if there's a big fight and they, the moment between introductions and when the fight starts, I, you know, your hands start to get a little sweaty because uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And... Um, mm. You may think you do, but you don't. And and the old boxing writers were really just right out of Damon Runyon. They were funny. They were cynical. They were they loved to hang out and tell stories. And they had screwed up lives of their own. But they loved they loved what they did. They they and they had a tremendous um, baseline respect for the people who do it. And and I I still mm -hmm. think you know there's no better. There's no, there's no um, more fascinating character in sports than Bob Arum, who's like 95 and is still <laughs> traveling the world, 
um, and is as successful now at top rank as he's ever been. I mean, they have a, they have a tremendous yeah. stable of fighters. And, uh, yeah, what a what a famous boxing promoter when you yeah. <laughs> it's it's the old uh, yesterday I was lying today I'm telling the yeah, truth yeah. that's the great uh, Bob Aaron uh, lying yeah he's uh, you know he's just uh, it's just a phenom and uh, you know he you know he goes back so far you know he still talks about the who the heavyweight champion is you know remember that <laughs> he still talks <laughs> right, like right, that right. you know that's still him <laughs> but um, it, it's uh, I love boxing and. and uh, I watch it as, as often as I can, um, and it, you know, actually, the sport's in pretty good shape. I mean, it may not be a mainstream sport anymore, but in terms of the talent and the matchups, it's it's really kind yeah. of kind of thriving at the moment. But okay, uh, you covered you know so many marquee fights since the since the seventies. Really, what's the greatest fight you covered, and why? I think it was '83. It was Aaron Pryor and and uh, Alexis Arguello in the Orange Bowl. Miami, yeah. Which was like 12 or 13 rounds. It was amazing. It was like that Hagler-Hearns fight, which lasted three rounds and everybody loves. It was like times four, you know. And um, they just went at it. And it was um, prior one. Um, it was in the Orange Bowl. It was like, those were the days, that was the days of Miami Vice. And, and so it's like 40,000 people there. And there was a little, you know, from all, from everywhere in the Caribbean and, and in Florida. And it was, it was kind of a, a uh, kind of a, a sense of menace in the air. I mean, it was exciting from that standpoint. A little, yeah. a little spooky too. <laughs> and um, and then um, that was that was just a phenomenal fight. Aaron Pryor and, and they, they were two of the best fighters that ever lived. And Alexis Arroyo was a a real nobleman. He was a great guy and and uh, guy who did a lot of things for people in Nicaragua at the time. Uh, but you know, Leonard and Hearns, the first one was about that time. That was a great fight too. And and the best one in recent years that I saw was the. And I don't go to all of them, but the the fourth uh, Manny Pacquiao fight with Juan Manuel Marquez, in which Pacquiao was knocked out, mm-hmm. that was that was just unbelievable in terms of a war, and also the atmosphere in Vegas, uh, you know, with uh, at the MGM Grand. Whenever there's a fighter like Marquez or Canelo, and they play that Mexican national anthem and everybody starts singing it, that that's that's something that puts chills. In you as well, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't apologize. I'm not a USC fan, but I'm a real big boxing fan. Well, Mark, it's been wonderful catching up with you. I, uh, I'm so grateful to have covered many games and events with you over the years. Uh, the road was full of many laughs, and many of them provided by <laughs> you. And I, I wish you the best of luck in retirement. Enjoy spending time with your wife, uh, Robin Norwood, who, by the way, an excellent sports writer for so many yes, years, 22, yes, I think, was. at the LA Times. Yeah. Um, so I'll have to have her on the show at some point here. Uh, Very proud of what she did. She was from she was from South Carolina, and she covered the Mighty Ducks for uh, their first few years in, in uh in existence, and I'm, I, I, I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure she's the only woman from South Carolina that covered an NHL team for a beat. But uh, she did a lot of other things, too, and I'm, I'm very proud of what she did. Well, we're going to have her on the show at some point, too. I, uh, I know you still got the itch to write. I, I think you recently began a Substack column, and mm-hmm. check it out, people. Subscribe. Oh, read yeah, the great work quicker. Please do. Mm-hmm. And, and you're also writing plays for the stage, which is really yeah. cool. Yeah, that's right? been a lot of fun, too. I'm, I'm really... Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a whole new community, and and uh, they've been very accepting of, of me being kind of like a looky-loo in their world, and uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot. I wonder what Shakespeare would have been like on Deadline. Uh, not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see 
I can't see Shakespeare, uh, you know, plugging the phone into his uh, laptop or Trash 80 and, <laughs> and batting out Macbeth. I just can't see that. But, but, do you think the bard would have picked up the tab at the bar? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I agree. Well, it depends on... Yeah, I don't know. We were all pretty good about doing that. Not too many of us had alligator arms. <laughs> we all kind of ponied up. <laughs> well, I'm going to pay for this round, Mark. Uh, thanks once again, and cheers. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing because it's great to to kind of be a curator of, of all the things that all the sports writers have done over the years, and I really, I really do admire what you're doing, and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.